the You Are Not So Smart podcast, live, on stage, in front of humans, in New York City. I would like you to be one of those humans, so please join me with several special scientists to celebrate self-delusion on May 15th. Tickets are available now, and if you need a link to find them, you will find that link on the You Are Not So Smart Twitter and Facebook accounts and at youarenotsosmart.com. You, me, brains, behavior, biases, and more in New York City on May 15th at the Bell House. Get your tickets before you can't get tickets anymore. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 152. You had this procedure to... Um uh, to correct that, an epileptic problem, yes. is that right? Trying to stop the seizures. I was having seizures like every day or so, or sometimes two or three a day. That's the voice of Alan Alda. It's from a 1996 episode of Scientific American Frontiers. And in the show, he interviews a famous split brain patient named Joe, who in the 1990s became one of the most valuable subjects in psychological research. Joe's unique because to help control his epileptic seizures, he underwent a corpus colostomy doctors severed almost all the nerve fibers that once connected his right and left brain hemispheres, leaving him, in many ways, a man with two brains. Do you feel any different when you think about something than you did any differently from the way you felt before the, the procedure? It's just got a backup brain, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's something everybody could use. Right? Like most split-brain patients, Joe lives a normal life. He doesn't subjectively feel any differently. And he can hold down a job, carry his side of the conversation, drive a car. But when put into certain situations, because his hemispheres can't communicate, he acts completely unlike a person whose brain hemispheres are still connected. For instance, in one experiment, scientists had Joe look at a cross in the middle of a screen and then a single word flashed for a second on either side of the far right or far left. He was then asked to say out loud the word that he saw. If the word flashed on the right, Joe could name it, but if it flashed on the left, he claimed that he couldn't see anything. But if the researchers handed him a pen and paper and then asked him to draw with his left hand what he saw, Joe could do so right away. And this is because the hemispheres are crisscrossed. The left receives input from the right eye and controls the right hand, and the right receives input from the left eye and controls the left hand. So if something appears to the left, only the right hemisphere sees it, and vice versa. But what generates this seemingly odd behavior is that language is mostly processed and produced in the left hemisphere. So when the left eye sees something, and thus the right hemisphere, the part of the brain that communicates, both to Joe and to others, can't access that information. But since the right hemisphere can control the left hand, it can draw on paper what it saw, thus revealing to Joe part of him did see the word. It's just that the part of him that uses words to explain things to himself and others 
didn't see it. In another experiment, he saw the word telephone on the left-hand side, claimed he saw nothing, but then drew a phone on the pad. And here's the amazing thing. Right about the time people around him were able to make out what he was drawing, he too experienced a shock of recognition and said, oh, it's a telephone, out loud to himself, as if one hemisphere was playing Pictionary with the other. For Joe, when his left hemisphere seized the phone for the first time, in essence, the communication that used to take place inside his skull is now taking place on the paper. But the real gift that split-brain patients gave to psychology and neuroscience is the revelation that the hemisphere that can speak in Joe and in you and everyone else is also, in most situations, the spokesperson for both hemispheres, for the brain as a whole, and not just a spokesperson, an interpreter. In fact, that's what psychologist Michael Gazaniga, who worked with Joe and who appears in the episode, called this spokesperson-slash-rationalizer-slash-storyteller, the left-brain interpreter. This is made most apparent in one of Gazaniga's experiments with Joe, which they performed in the episode you heard a moment ago, On the screen, Joe sees two words simultaneously. Bell on the left, which means it goes in the right hemisphere, and music on the right, which goes in the left hemisphere. They then show Joe four images. A person playing a drum, a person playing a trumpet, a church with a bell tower, and an organ, all at the same time. When asked to point to a picture of what he saw with his left hand, he chooses bell. But when asked why he chose it, the speaking hemisphere, the one where the left brain interpreter lives, didn't see the word bell, and so it doesn't know why the other hemisphere pointed at it. But instead of saying, I don't know, this is what he says. Why'd you pick that one? Music. Music. There was music and bell, and it was a few minutes ago, the last time I heard any music was coming from the bells out here. Uh Uh-huh. Banging away. So the bells outside here? So, look good enough answer to me. Since the other images are more connected to music than the bell, Joe's left brain interpreter had to come up with some story about why he chose bell that made sense. So, he says the last music he heard was a bell somewhere on campus ringing. It's a fiction, a, a lie, or what psychologists call a confabulation. And split brain patients always do this instead of saying, I don't know. If the non-speaking hemisphere is shown disgusting images of decomposing animals or car crash victims, they will often feel disgust, but when asked why, they will claim they've eaten something that didn't agree with them. If the non-speaking hemisphere sees something silly, they might smile, and when asked why, they will say they just remembered a funny joke. The moment they don't understand their own behavior, without missing a beat, They avoid confusion by creating a false but plausible rationalization that they themselves take to be true. And here's the thing. This is something we all do, whether or not your corpus callosum is intact. The left-brain interpreter is always rationalizing your behaviors, your thoughts, your feelings, your circumstances, your judgments, and the outcomes of your decisions. And here's Michael Gazaniga himself commenting on the essential truth that this reveals about brains. One of the unique things to the human brain is this need to interpret why two events occurred. What was the antecedent of this? What caused this? Mm -hmm. And if you can imagine that that a species like us that has that 
little chip in its brain that asks those questions is going to survive rather well because it's going to figure out more about the nature of the world than a, than a species that doesn't have it. So, you know, I get this, but this trickery, the obfuscation, this tendency for one portion of the brain to make up stories and then convince the rest of the brain to believe those stories, it makes me feel really odd about what it means to be a person. And so I ask a psychologist who studies rationalization if this was a normal reaction to learning that this is how brains make sense of the world. Yeah, it freaks me right out. (laughs) That's psychologist Kristen Lauren. I am Kristen Lauren. I'm an assistant professor of psychology in uh, at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Dr. Lauren said that split-brain patients reveal that you, the person who is listening to this episode, is not a single entity, but more a collection of agencies, all competing for control of the entire organism. You can watch a person, basically two halves of a person, fight with each other. Right. So Mm -hmm. I one video that I've seen is like there's a guy and he's in he's in a sort of a bed and he's doing some math with his his right hand and his left hand is is basically like trying to stop the right hand from doing the math. So his left hand like it like he's so he's it's it's really just like hard to even describe. So he's his right hand is trying to write the math and his left hand is trying to wrap the right hand up in the bed sheets to prevent it from doing it and ultimately like grabs the pen and throws it across the room. Uh. And just trying to imagine what that's like as an experience is is insane. And then so I think about myself and, you know, then you start to think, well, you know, are there are there internal wars, you know, going on in my body where like part of me wants to do one thing and part of me wants to do a different thing? Like if I'm on my way to see someone and I trip, is that, you know, did I just trip or is that? you know, something, some part of my brain that I don't have conscious access to making me trip and trying to like prevent me from going to see this person because that part of my brain doesn't like this person. Lauren said that this tripping example would be an extreme case, but we do lesser versions of this self-sabotage all the time. It's just the story you tell yourself about what really happened, what really motivated you, what really drove your behavior. It's just what the left brain interpreter comes up with in the moment. We need causal narratives to remain consistent and sane, but that doesn't mean they're true. Underneath that clean, retconned, post-hoc rationalization, there's a noisy parliament of mental agents pulling you in every direction, arguing over what they want and need. It's just that, I mean... I am fighting myself. Like I'm like I'm standing there like, do I should I eat that chocolate cake? I want it really bad. Well, you shouldn't do it. Well, it won't be that, okay. And you're sitting, you're just having this ridiculous yeah. argument. I mean, um, when I see the split brain patients, I think the same thing. I'm like, I contain multitudes and they're like all vying for control of my organism. And where am I in this? Is there an mm-hmm. I in this? Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, and like what do I genuinely want? Right? Is your genuine desire to eat the cake or is your genuine desire you know, to, to, to not eat the cake and be a healthier person. I don't think there's really an answer to that question, but you know, people, people study things like authenticity, like which would be the most authentic thing for me to do, eat the cake or not eat the cake. And I, I think it's impossible to answer that question.
what is like the weirdest rationalization you've ever seen either in your own research or in the literature? Oh man. Um, in the, in a project that I'm working on now where we're looking at sort of how people rationalize their own unethical behavior, there's there. So we're reviewing lots of literature on this topic. And the thing that I, that I mean, I think is the funniest or the, the most, the most wild is basically uh, this finding where people, after they've done something bad, they basically um, derogate others who did the right thing. Oh, okay, so okay. so so like the the study that I have in mind is a study where basically participants are brought in to a lab to play this like police detective game, and they're given the the experimenter says, okay, so we we've created this uh, you know mystery, this detective mystery, and you have to. Um, solve the mystery. And so they, they give them all these materials and there's three suspects in this robbery. There's two uh, white suspects and there's one black suspect. And the way the task is constructed, the black suspect is the obviously guilty one. Right. And so participants will, you know, play this, play along with the game and they say, okay, well the, the black guy is the guilty person. And then they watch another participant play the game. And the other participant does sort of a more you might say righteous thing and says, uh, you know, this task is clearly racist. Like you just designed this task to make the, the only black guy, the guilty person. I'm not going to play along with your game. I'm not answering the question. And then the participant basically just like hates this, <laughs> this person who just watched do the right thing. Right. Cause then they're basically <laughs> feeling bad about themselves and they're just like totally, you know, trying to, to basically trying to feel better by saying, yeah, but like that guy, you know, there's something wrong with that guy, like this moral rebel, they call them moral rebels, right? This guy who's resisting and to do the moral thing, like, I don't want to spend time with him. I think he's a jerk. I think no one else would like him. Like, I, I can't stand that guy. And we, we don't do that. Of course, if you haven't just played the game, if you're just a, a fresh participant watching, you think that guy's pretty great. You think you have a lot of respect for him. You think he's standing up for his principles. It's only if you yourself, you know, have just sort of committed the sin that this person's now refusing to commit that you're like, ah, I don't like that guy. Rationalizations, the stories we tell ourselves to explain ourselves to ourselves. They often have this quality. They not only provide these causal narratives to help the world seem more predictable and understandable, but we tend to write them in a way that paints us in a positive light as protagonists. I mean, they are our stories after all. And if bad things happen because of our behaviors, we might not truly know why we did what we did, but the story we tell, the rationalization we produce, will often make it seem as though we weren't at fault. Another way the left brain interpreter rationalizes is to take whatever terrible circumstances we find ourselves within and rewrite, reinterpret it in a way that is actually good. The interpreter is very talented at turning lemons into lemonade, divorce, losing a job, a terrible illness, to keep us sane and moving forward. We often rationalize terrible situations that drastically alter our lives, and we do so in a way that makes those events seem like the best thing that ever happened to us. It's a clever trick, a gift really, one that allows us to rebuild our lives and develop new identities instead of the alternative, which is spiraling down into depression and stasis. By telling us a good story, the interpreter keeps us from taking up extended residence in our bedrooms with the covers over our heads. 
While studying this kind of rationalization, Dr. Lauren wondered if it scaled up to groups, to cultures, and nations. She had noticed that when people greatly resist a change to the status quo, the election of a president that many people didn't want, the passing of new legislation that many people resist, the creation of new policies that people are sure will cause harm, once the change actually happens, the panic often seemed to evaporate and often very quickly, within a few weeks. Lauren wondered if this, too, was a form of rationalization, one that people perform without realizing it, and one that can have a big impact on how we see ourselves as people. So, she set out to create a series of experiments to answer all those questions. And after this break, you will hear all about those experiments, what she discovered, and what advice she has for people resisting and dealing with changes to the status quo. One of my favorite things to do is learn something new. And The Great Courses Plus is the best way to do that. It's like being a kid in a candy store filled with knowledge. You have a wealth of information right in front of you across so many fascinating topics. You will never be able to eat it all. It's amazing. It's like um, the fallacies of faulty authority, ancient Mesopotamia, science and pseudoscience. It's all right there in front of you. Literally, these are things that you can get at The Great Courses Plus, and you can binge on them as much as you want. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to learn from some of the best professors in the world without the pressure of homework or exams. I recommend checking out their brand new course, Theories of Knowledge, How to Think About What You Know. This course gives a philosophical look at what knowledge truly is, how we acquire it, and how we justify our beliefs. So what do you get in this course? You get 24 lectures, about 30 minutes long each, about things like knowledge, truth, and belief, Hume's attack on induction, how deduction contributes to knowledge, the reliability of scientific testimony, testimony in the media, the extended mind, confabulation, problems with self-knowledge, and more. You are going to love The Great Courses Plus, and for a limited time only, you can get a free trial through this podcast, and you can lock into their lowest price of $10 a month when you sign up for a three-month plan. That's 50% off of their regular price. How do you do this? To get this limited-time deal, you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. Get your free trial plus 50% off your monthly plan right now, only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. psychological literature is clear when it comes to how people cope with terrible circumstances, people tend to rationalize their new reality. 
When individuals face an unwanted future personal situation, a terminal illness, a divorce, losing their job, an IRS audit, a delayed flight, anything like that, their attitudes tend to improve about that situation once it becomes a definite reality. Psychologist Kristen Lauren, who you met earlier, hypothesized that the same thing might happen when an unwanted, anticipated socio-political reality takes effect. A new law, a new president, an impending war, and so on. To cope, people likely rationalize the new status quo, and as a result, their attitudes shift once it takes effect, thus generating a new consensus reality. They change their minds to better endure the new normal. Right, and often what that means more specifically is you're changing your attitudes or your beliefs or your just how you perceive the world to sort of make something that seems disturbing seem less disturbing. So just to give you an example, right, I, I'm as a woman, maybe I look around the world and I see that, uh, you know, in my country and in, in many countries, men get better financial outcomes than women do. That That's something about reality that could disturb me. And I could rationalize that by sort of adopting some new views that make that okay. So I could start to tell myself, well, you know, men probably just make different decisions than women do. And, and maybe men are just better at lots of stuff. Maybe they're better leaders. Maybe they're more competent. So maybe it kind of makes sense that they get better financial outcomes than women do, right? So that's not a belief that I had before. That's a belief that I've sort of fooled myself into adopting to make myself feel at peace with the gender inequality that I see in the world. Lauren said that previous research has shown that people don't always do this. People often do truly dislike their personal status quo, and they work to change it. But under specific conditions, rationalization is more likely to kick in. One being that they can't physically escape their current situation, and another being they anticipate a coming change to their lives with 100% certainty. To be honest, I'm I'm just really obsessed with rationalization and really interested in figuring out how that works because it's really kind of astounding if you think about it. What it is, is you're sort of, in some sense, persuading yourself to believe something that you didn't believe before. And you know, you must know on some level that you're persuading yourself to adopt this new belief, which you would think would make it sort of impossible, right? Like, how can you just genuinely believe something just because you've decided to believe it, you know? how can you not see through that sort of manipulation you're trying to do on yourself? And yet it's something that we see people do all the time. So that's kind of where my general interest in, in rationalization lies. And I guess I had done um, a, a few different research projects already earlier in my career, looking at the circumstances under which people will rationalize. And I was starting to realize when I kind of put them all together that the, the common theme was that people will rationalize things that they feel sort of stuck with that they can't get away from. And as this was happening, uh, you know, there were, there were constant discussions around me of, of policy changes, new laws coming into effect in, in various places I was living. And I realized, Oh, you know, you know, what really makes it feel like you can't escape something is like when it's actually a part of your reality, when it's actually in front of you and you can't, you know, it's kind of too late to do something to prevent it. Um, so that's kind of what I what I what I originally was was thinking about was that day when something that you've anticipated has become real that should if I'm right that should trigger additional rationalizations and so that's kind of what I was interested uh, in finding out 
And I was really interested in finding out and in, in moving beyond my past work, which had been mostly like lab studies using paradigms where we sort of try to convince people that there's going to be this new law or try to tell people to imagine that they're facing this circumstance. But that's sort of a far cry from the way that happens in real life. And so just as I was having this idea, I was actually living um, in, in Northern California near San Francisco. And there was a lot of talk about this new law that was going to ban the sale of plastic water bottles in the city of San Francisco. And I sort of thought, oh, well, that's a great first sort of thing that I could look at to test this idea. Lauren designed a preliminary study around the upcoming ban of water bottles in San Francisco. She and her team sampled citizens there before and after the ban. And sure enough, people's attitudes before the ban were far more negative than they were once the ban took effect. And so that finding was consistent with what we expected, right? It's, it's consistent with the idea that people are rationalizing new realities that they come to face. But there's also some problems with that finding that probably your listeners will be able to, to see right through, which is that maybe, you know, when the law took effect, they people got more information. They realized, oh, now that this law is in effect, I realize it's actually not bad at all. And maybe there's some benefits to it, right? Something's changed from before to after uh, the law takes effect that could, uh, that could, you know, change their attitudes in a genuine way, as opposed to through this sort of psychological manipulation of rationalization. To take the research further, Lauren designed a more rigorous protocol and then went looking for other unpopular laws that would soon be taking effect. I hit on one in uh, the province of Ontario in Canada, where in at, in the winter of 2015-2016, a new law took effect that banned smoking in all sorts of public places, parks, uh, restaurant patios, bar patios, uh, sports fields, things like that. I don't know who's smoking on a sports field, by the way, but <laughs> the, the Ontario government felt that they should uh, ban that practice. And so uh, in that study, what I did was I, I recruited, we recruited a bunch of Ontarian smokers. So these are people living in Ontario who uh, are in a database of, of, of smokers. Uh, and we actually uh, got information from them twice. So once, sort of in the fall of 2015, long before the law took effect, uh, we asked them some questions. And instead of asking them how they felt about the new law, which which could change over time as they are gaining new information, we asked them about something that shouldn't change over time uh, in any kind of systematic way, which is their their recollection for how much in the previous summer they had smoked in these various places. So, uh, you know, restaurant patios, bar patios, sports fields, public parks, things like that. To test for justification, right after the law took effect, Laura and her team compared how much the smokers in her study remembered smoking in the now-banned locations compared to how much they remembered smoking in those locations when the law was first announced. And they found that, indeed, people seemed to rewrite their own pasts. Now that it was illegal, they remembered smoking in those places far less than they did before it was illegal. Right, and so we interpret that again as, as rationalization. This is people um, who who are learning about this new law that just took effect and telling us, you know, to sort of paraphrase, ah, you know, now that I think about it, uh, I don't really smoke in these places too much anyway, so I'm not going to be negatively affected by this law. It's not going to be a problem for my life. To avoid negative emotions about the changing laws, they altered their own memories, the stories of their own personal history, as a way to cope with the new normal. Before the law, they thought, I can't smoke in bars? Well, that sucks. After the law took effect, they thought, I can't smoke in bars? Well, that's fine. 
I never smoked in bars all that much anyway. So then the last study, this was one uh, that, you know, so basically we had these sort of two studies uh, in the, in the, in the bag where we were finding effects consistent with what we thought. And then sort of, as we were, uh, you know, analyzing this data, obviously the, what was going on in part was the U S primary process and then the U S election. And I thought, well, this is sort of a, a golden opportunity to test this idea one last time in the context of the presidential inauguration. Right. So the question in this study then was, are people going to rationalize the presidency of Donald Trump right after con- the inauguration compared to any time before, right? So once you're saying President Donald Trump instead of President-elect Donald Trump, is that like a psychological trigger for you that, oh, this is something that I'm, that I'm stuck with, that I can't escape, that I better sort of get on side with? For this third study, Lauren and her team selected a large sample of Americans and polled them at regular intervals starting with the moment Trump won to see how they felt about Donald Trump overall now that he was going to be president. And, and this is a really interesting question, they asked, how real does it feel to you that Donald Trump will soon be the president of the United States? And basically what we find is from early December through to just a couple days right before the inauguration, the week before the inauguration, we don't really find that people's attitudes are changing. They're right around the midpoint of the scale, which makes sense because this is a representative sample. So we've got some Republicans, we've got some Democrats, we've got some people who voted for Trump, some people who didn't vote for Trump. Uh, So nothing much changes in that time period. And then these very same people, just two days later, in the couple days after the inauguration, suddenly, systematically, everyone's attitudes are shifting in the positive direction. Coincidentally with that, everyone's sense that the Trump presidency is real also shifts in the positive direction. And then we can do some statistical tests to see whether that sense of reality is what explains people's more positive attitudes post-inauguration. And that's what we found. Right up until the day he was inaugurated, people's attitudes toward Trump remained whatever they had always been. But once he was president, their attitudes shifted, growing more positive. To protect themselves psychologically, they rationalized this new normal. And Lauren's team found this was true for Trump supporters as well. Even Trump voters tended to dislike a lot of his qualities and a lot of his behaviors. But once he was president, they tended to rationalize those qualities as, you know, actually, when you think about it, pretty good. Once they had to accept that he was actually really the president, they shifted their attitudes so that what they once saw as bugs, they now saw as features. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting about the study is we go back to um, that concern that we had about the first study where, you know, you think, well, maybe it's just something that people have learned, right? During the inauguration or surrounding the inauguration, maybe it's something that people have learned that's sort of shown them that they should feel more positively about Trump. And so we try to get at that by asking people basically about how they thought the inauguration went. Right. So that we can see, is it just that like everyone thought the inauguration went super well and that's why everyone's attitudes towards Trump became more positive. But that's actually not what we find. We find even people who hated the Trump inauguration, even people who said that he performed really badly in that inauguration, 
after that disappointing, from their perspective, that disappointing performance, they still are giving Trump higher approval ratings. They're still saying they like him more than they did before, which is really perplexing, right, if you're just thinking about what should logically drive people's attitudes. But it makes perfect sense from a rationalization perspective where, yeah, even if I don't like this new president, even if I thought he did really badly in the inauguration, I'm stuck with him now. And you know, I can, I have, I kind of have two choices, right? I can be miserable for the next four years, or I can try to sort of trick myself into feeling more positively about, about the situation. When, when are people most likely to do this? So they're, uh, you know, on the spectrum of, of uh, you know, uh, as, a th- as a status quo grows and changes and mutates, at what point are people most likely to rationalize the, uh, the system itself? So the way that my work has kind of looked at that, uh, people, so other research has shown that people generally rationalize the status quo as, as it is now, but you're, you're pointing out the obvious fact, which is that the status quo does sort of regularly change no matter what uh, we do. And so in my work, I've sort of, you can, from the perspective of my work, you can divide that time uh, of change into sort of three pieces, right? There's the time when people are talking about change, but nothing has actually, no action has actually been taken. Then there's the time uh, when, you know, a decision has been made, change will happen, but the change hasn't happened yet. And then there's the point in time after the change has taken place. And so what I've found is that uh, that first that first decision point is an important trigger. So once you know for sure that something is going to happen, you'll start to rationalize it. Once you know for sure, you know, that somebody's been elected, once you know for sure that a particular law is going to take effect, you start to rationalize that. And then the second trigger point that my work has identified is the point at which it actually comes into effect. So once that person gets, uh, you know, takes office, once that law actually takes effect, then that sort of kicks up rationalizations uh, even higher than they were before. When it's when there is a struggle against a status quo that is harming people uh, or that is limiting their freedom, the resistance sometimes can be immense, at least in public opinion polls, whether it was uh, interracial marriage or uh, same-sex marriage, um, mm-hmm. suffrage. There's all, and you know, the if if you just waited for the public and uh, mass to go to a, a majority. Uh, in favor of the things, some of these movements wouldn't have uh, kicked over. And I think that's really uh, fascinating because some of them, some of the major changes in public opinion in our country, in the United States, had took place after the legislation was passed, after yes. uh, the Supreme Court had something to say about it. Talk to me about that for a minute. I mean, I, there are lots of different reasons why that happens, and people have studied it from sort of all different kinds of angles. Uh, you know, some people have said that that actually kind of makes sense if you think about it, because whenever a change is always a risk that you're taking, right? You know what the status quo is, you know what the world looks like under the current, you know, legislation or whatever it might be, and a change is always a change towards the unknown. And so they argue that, you know, all all this is is people being risk averse, right? They just don't want to change. And that kind of makes sense because anytime you're making a change, you're taking a risk, uh, you know, and the risk could, you know, kill you or kill end the world or, or whatever it is like that. 
Um, other people study it from kind of a different perspective, suggesting that it's more of a uh, motivated kind of thing. It's more of an irrational kind of fear. It's more of an attachment to uh, the status quo because we're sort of invested in it, right? Because we are just by living in the world the way that it is, we're sort of tacitly supporting the social arrangements the way that they are, right? And so that gives us a reason to want to um, preserve that because we've sort of supported that with our behavior up until this point. And so if we say that we're going to change things, well, that's sort of an admission that we've been tacitly supporting this thing that wasn't right for a long time. And so that can cause some kind of resistance to change also. So uh, one, th- one last question uh, with your research. I'd always uh, try to do this uh, in the show is give some sort of prescriptive advice or uh, some sort of something optimistic um, so, you know, looking at what you've got here, if you were to, uh, let's imagine it like this, if you were to consult either a activist group who was protesting and trying to affect change or, and they were facing a status quo that was seemed to be really hard to crack, or you were, um, uh, consulting maybe a government or a politician who was, um, wondering about what they do when it comes to public opinion on an issue that legislation is or for which legislation is looming how would you uh what kind of advice would you give them based off what you have learned in this research yeah so i mean i i'm gonna just preface this by saying the advice is uh advice that would be useful for them in helping to reach their goals not necessarily advice that sort of you know good in in any kind of ultimate sense necessarily mm-hmm. uh so let me i'll start with the second group right so the legislators who are trying who are wondering what to do about public opinion uh in the in and in, in the face of looming legislation i think the most obvious advice is like don't worry about it too much because when the legislation comes into effect people are going to start making their peace with it and I, I mean, I should I should mention that the effects, the size of the effects that we're seeing in this research are not huge, but I, I think it's likely that they sort of accumulate over time, right? So like people's attitudes shift a little bit in the positive direction, then people are seeing a little bit more public support for whatever the, the this recent legislation is that, you know, that snowballs into more and more support. So I think, I think the sort of ironic and perhaps, you know, you might say undemocratic advice, like I said, for legislate legislators is, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, public opinion problems will sometimes solve themselves uh, in these kinds of situations. For the activists, it's a little more complicated, I guess, for their for their goal, which is to protest a legislation or protest uh, a legislator. Um, my advice to them would be like, be as visible as possible because from the sort of broader perspective of my research program, right? The more people think change is possible, the more people will get on board with it. And Mm -hmm. so as activists, you want to be as visible as possible, seem as powerful as possible, you know, be as confident as possible and that kind of thing. Uh, presumably this research would suggest that that's going to be more effective in terms of attracting people to your cause. Um, but if you're talking about sort of activists and their own sort of internal well-being, um, I think that's I'm just throwing that in there because that's some of my current research right now, like looking at how does rationalization influence people's well-being sort of in the short term and the long term. I think um, that's something that's, that remains to be seen. Right. Like 
as an activist, you're constantly protesting things that you don't like, you know, on the one hand, maybe that makes you sort of uh, unhappy in the moment because you're just seeing everything that you think is wrong with the world. But in the long run, maybe we think that's going to make you uh, feel good about yourself because like you're fighting the good fight, right? And you're actually striving to accomplish something. Whereas someone who's rationalizing is going to kind of have the flip, right? They're going to feel good in the moment because they're sort of hiding potential problems with the world from themselves. But in the long run, you know, if you go around rationalizing everything you don't like, you're costing yourself opportunities to you know accomplish something and and get to feel good about yourself in that way If you'd like to keep up with Kristen Lauren and Kristen Lauren's research, you can find her and her research at Magic Lab. The website is magiclab.psych.ubc.ca. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. You can find all the past episodes at Boing Boing, You're Not So Smart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. All the interstitial music is by Kevin McLeod. He's got a website called Incompetech.com. Follow You're Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McRaney. Also, go to Facebook and follow the the website and blog and podcast and everything there is just slash you are not so smart and support you are not so smart by going to patreon.com a contribution at any level will get you the show ad free but at the higher levels you'll get t-shirts and signed books and stuff like that the show notes are over at you are not so smart.com all right new show two weeks from now see you then